Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Um, yeah, so today we want to talk a little uh, uh, Venezuela. We, you know, a little international uh, politics, economics, international diplomacy. Uh, how, how the left should be thinking about um, this sort of uh, crisis, which is... Uh, you know, a combination of of what I would say poor planning on the part of the Venezuelan government and um, commodity price trends and uh, the Trump administration conducting a kind of economic warfare and diplomatic warfare on the the, the Venezuelan government as well. And how the left should sort of in in my view, you know, take into account the the mistakes of the um, Venezuelan government, uh, while at the same time absolutely condemning uh, any proposed imperialist aggression against Venezuela, and uh, you know, to, to to trying to keep our big stinking nose out of that uh, that that business. Right. It's it's kind of the political equivalent of uh, walking and chewing gum at the same time, figuring out how to critique imperialism and also understand that uh, Maduro isn't necessarily the the best representation of leftism, nor is Venezuela in many ways uh, now or in the past the, the best ideal for what uh, socialism should be. Um, so it's a complicated thing, and, and it's worth uh, teasing out. Yes, yes, and I think if if everyone could agree on that, on on agree on those two points, number one, and most importantly by far, that the any sort of proposed military intervention or the I would say the, even the sanctions they're putting on Venezuela are totally illegitimate. We should not be interfering with that country at all. Let them sort out their own business to the you know greatest possible extent. You know, maybe in a different world. We could imagine trying to sort of like broker some sort of a deal with Mexico and Bolivia to be like, you know, look, let's let's uh, you know, let's all let's all be friends here or something like that. But like Trump is president. That's not going to happen. The key thing is to stop any sort of like military uh, coup uh, backed by the U.S. And at the same time, right, first. Yes, yes. That's number one. Number one, and really, the, I would say probably the only very important thing that 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 Americans can do. But at the same time, insofar as it is important, and I think it is important to to be accurate in our analysis and to be honest in terms of what is happening in in the world, um, uh, recognizing that Maduro has been a corrupt piece of shit. Like he has fucked up Venezuela real bad. And he, in fact, had fucked it up long before the U.S. put any sort of sanctions on Venezuela, which happened in 2015. And the U.S. put sanctions on Venezuela uh, only because he was doing some fairly shady, uh, um, you know, manipulating the constitutional machinery after his party was waxed in the 2015 parliamentary elections. And so trying to keep those two things in view, I think, is a, it's, it's an important intellectual exercise in trying to figure out where people should position themselves and where, where, how people should think about this is, I think, a, a kind of an important 
topic. Right. Especially tricky for anyone, but, but on the left to figure out, to, to take on the challenge of a nuanced view of things when your interlocutors or opponents are being intellectually disingenuous and dishonest. So, so I, the temptation is, of course, to be equally dishonest just for rhetorical purposes. Um, but that's a temptation to be avoided if you really want um, to win at the end of the day, I think. Yeah, and so that's why we've got, uh, we, we, we brought on here um, Patrick Eber who is a, a uh, historian of Latin America, um, ha, uh, has, has written extensively on the history of American imperialism in Latin America, which is, you know, as, as he will tell you, to, to some of those details, very long and very bloody and oppressive indeed. Um, but, you know, he is also has no illusions about the nature of um, the Maduro presidency and, um, you know, how Venezuela got to where it is, uh, which which is not 100 percent the fault of American uh, imperialist aggression. That's just a that's just a, a factual matter. And so, yeah, um, you want to bring him on, uh, talk to him about it. Unfortunately, Alexi w- couldn't be present for this one because uh, it, this this had to happen during the day. But um I got to talk to him, and um, so let's go ahead and roll that while we're at it. I guess uh, maybe just start out by telling us a little, you know, give us a little biography here, you know, what, uh, where you come from, what your uh, work is and such. Sure. Um, so uh, I teach history. I teach Latin American history and U.S. foreign relations at the University of Wisconsin. Um uh, my, uh, area of expertise is not Venezuela in particular, but, uh, the history of U.S. foreign relations and its actions in Latin America, uh, more broadly have been the subject of my research for a few years. I wrote a book a few years ago, uh, called Neither Peace Nor Freedom, the Cultural Cold War in Latin America, which was about, um, artists and writers, intellectuals, engagement with Cold War politics. Uh, And it's been surprising to have been watching the events unfolding in Venezuela and seeing a number of parallels between the kinds of civil society organizations that were involved in that kind of Cold War conflict uh, and some of the problems that um, people are facing facing today. It's one of those unexpected times where historical study suddenly seems to be jumping out the the pages of the, of newspapers and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Um, I thought, you know, um, I thought we could start just maybe by doing, I, I could give you kind of my, my capsule sort of take on the last few years of history in Venezuela and you, and you, just just to give us a little bit of background, you know, um, and and you could maybe correct me as needed. Uh, sure. So, you know, Venezuela's uh, maybe you start with a you know Hugo Chavez was the president for many years uh, up through what he died in twenty thirteen, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Yeah. 
And right about the, the, the end of his presidency in 2013, uh, Venezuela started to experience some, some pretty severe economic problems. Um, and from what I can tell, there is basically two things going on. Number one, that Venezuela had had basically been funding a lot of its you know basic government expenditures, its you know state revenues through oil uh, you know sales. And number two, um, after Chavez died, especially they had this price control system, which you know some of uh, his successor Nicolas Maduro uh, basically used. They, they they abused the price control mechanism to just like basically steal a lot of that oil money, um, and the result was a huge shortfall in in revenues basically to to sort of run the country. And they try to cover the difference by printing, and that caused a lot of inflation and shortages and such. And uh, so there was a big um backlash big protests in 2014 against maduro uh who was chavez's handpicked successor if i'm not mistaken um and in 2015 there was uh there was parliamentary elections for the uh the national assembly and maduro's party the the ruling party got absolutely stomped they they lost by uh they they lost what I think they got it was one... uh, they they had fifty six percent of the opposition had I believe fifty six percent of the vote and it translated to almost two thirds of the uh, two thirds of the seats yeah in the assembly um, which was you know the system the the constitution had been written by uh, by Chavez so that was a system that the ruling party had you know had put, that was their constitution. Right. Yes. Rules. But yeah, they lost by a substantial margin in those uh, in those elections. And right. And so Maduro and his party basically responded with a lot of sneaky shenanigans. Basically, they they uh, put some cronies on the Supreme Court and they sort of disputed the results of a couple of elections to stop the opposition from having two thirds in the National Assembly. And um, that. Right. So there were, I think there were three seats in particular that were disputed. They alleged that the opposition had engaged in in fraud and used the uh, 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 their own judges, which they had, you know, throughout the judicial system have been uh, placed over the years and appointed by uh, by Chavez and his successor Maduro, as you said, uh, to essentially knock out three seats which prevented the the opposition from having a two-thirds majority which would have allowed them to potentially recall and remove maduro from office so that was what it was at stake in that uh in that election the one the only thing i would add to what you said before is that the exchange rate um uh, the arbitrage system predates maduro that was something that was there under chavez too and was used strategically to give, you give favored people access to prefer, preferential exchange rates. That's one of the things that has been causing economic problems. But the, you're, you're certainly right that the, that the gravity of the economic crisis has intensified after Chavez's uh, death in 2013, that, you know, there was inflation under Chavez and shortages that were there under Chavez. But 
not the kind of massive hunger that is driving people to leave the country by the millions, nor the hyperinflation that you have today. I mean, there was 40%, 70% inflation under Chavez. It's a million percent last year. So that's a big yeah. difference. Yeah, my, my sort of sense of it is that under Chavez, there was a, you know, there was a lot of insiders, you know, getting a, a taste of the oil money, but like the people got most of it. And in under Maduro, it's gone the other way around. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a that's a fair characterization. I mean, it's certainly the case that if you looked at, um, I mean, if you looked at the, if you looked at the Chavez years, and there were people all, all along, including voices on the left who have been criti- were critical of Chavez and the model of Chavez, but their critique at that time was that the money that was being spent could have been spent better. <laughs> Yeah, Yet it could have been spent more responsibly. It wasn't that the poor were not benefiting. The social programs that the Chavez government put in place were uh, were helpful in improving the lives of the poor. And the poverty rates went down substantially under Chavez. They went down uh, into the into the 20s or the 30s, uh, having been much higher than that. Now the estimate is hard to get good estimates now. But now they're in the 70s or 80s. I mean, they've gone way up under. So you had a you did have a real decline in poverty under Chavez. The social programs were really welcome. Some of them were not effective, but by and large, the the general orientation of the government was one that benefited the poor. And levels of inequality also uh, also dropped substantially. There was a time in 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 which it was asserted that Venezuela was the most equal country by its Gini measure in the hemisphere that always never took account for Canada, which is lower, but it seems to have been down in the, in the high thirties, which is low for the, for Latin America, for the Americas in general, which where we tend to have very high measures of inequality. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That, I mean, I don't have any idea how you would measure that, that today, uh, given that the statistics are not available or reliable, but, but we know that poverty rates have skyrocketed. So that's the that's the situation that we're that, that yes, people in Venezuela yes. are facing. Yeah. And as um um after twenty fifteen, when there's just like pretty you know extra constitutional meddling with the Democrat to sort of somewhat overturn the result of the election, um, then the the U.S. slapped some sanctions on on uh, certain uh, businessmen and Ma- Maduro sort of uh, allies. And then, you know, this this is like, it all starts to bite in harder because like oil st- oil's lower and now they're in, san- in uh, get, you know, getting sanctioned and they're just printing more and more to cover up the difference. And so, you know, as you were, as you were referencing before, inflation starts to go up and up and up. And the the protests, you know, the the popularity of Maduro has has fallen, and you know, various kind of uh, conservative right wing forces who maybe are not terribly sympathetic to uh, poor people or democracy in general have started, you know, making noises about a, you know, a coup or you know, some something like that. But on the other hand, you know, Maduro d- is inspiring these massive protests. Uh, so there's a genuine popular groundswell there at the same time. And um, in, let's see, was it 2018? There's another election, right? Yeah. Um, and that right one, up. go ahead. 
right, a presidential election that time, and and the elections weren't fair, and you know weren't going to be fair, and were set up to be won by Maduro under any circumstances, and so there was an opposition candidate, but it wasn't didn't receive united unified support, and uh, so Maduro won the election. Uh, but the opposition had boycotted. It's a strategy that they have used before when they decided that the conditions of the election were were illegitimate. At other times, that gave Chavismo huge majorities, huge electoral majorities that it could work with. But um, uh, this time, the strategy has been essentially to uh, create a, div- a, 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 a is to create this crisis situation in which there are now two claimants for democratic legitimacy. On the one hand, Maduro, who can point to the last presidential election, and then the the head of the National Assembly, this guy Juan Guaido, who has declared himself the constitutional uh, leader, has declared himself the president, essentially, um, according to his interpretation of the Constitution. And the legal issues are so are so complex and depend on so many matters of interpretation. Even when you look at the, you can look at the clause of the constitution and say, well, when, when fine, but when is it the case that somebody like Maduro would not be considered to be the, the legitimate president or there's nothing in the constitution that tells you what to do when there's a fraudulent uh, election, if that's what you want to call what happened in 2018. Um, and uh, so it's a sort of unprecedented situation in which these these two figures, these two political figures, Maduro and Guaido, are saying that they're the ones that have the the, elector, the, the democratic legitimacy, and then basically trying to make it happen. Um, yeah. You know, Guaido through uh, is trying to assemble a coalition that will allow him to claim that legitimacy, and Maduro is trying to claim is trying to hang on to the parts that remain. Uh, to of, of his um, uh, of his coalition, pr- primarily the military, which is the main thing that hasn't uh, that hasn't abandoned him. I should say, in, in response to what you said earlier, just briefly, that the the opposition's commitment to democracy is not something of long standing. I mean, there was an attempt to remove Chavez in two thousand and two. Uh, he was. I think 48 or 72 hours, a couple of days before people marched down, sort of restored the Chavez presidency. Uh, that was something that the that the Bush administration immediately sort of recognized the the the, the government of the the businessman who took over from uh, from Chavez. So um, there are claims to democratic legitimacy on all sides of uh, the political competition here. And even the words that we use to describe them, uh, like right wing uh, and left wing, would be strongly contested in different situations. I mean, it's very yeah. difficult for a lot of people to associate Maduro's program, the huge increases in levels of poverty and corruption. It's very difficult for people on the left to say, well, yes, I mean, this is what I identify as a, I mean, they call themselves socialists, okay, but is this really a, a, a left wing program? On the other hand, you know, Guaido comes from a party which belongs to the Second International, uh, and they're really I didn't know that. They, yeah, he does. Uh, the uh, the the 
the program that he would put in place, uh, I don't think would be a ferociously um, reactionary program, though, of course, that remains to be seen. And this is one of the things that we'll probably get into as we go throughout the conversation. I mean, it all depends on where, you know, where you assemble the political power. Where does it where what kind of coalition can you put together? Where is it going to come from? And what yeah. is true about Guaido and the party that he comes from, which are sometimes described as the right wing in Venezuelan politics, uh, he seems to be tutored by Leopoldo Lopez, who's a, an, an opposition figure who is most closely associated with procedural radicalism to try and force Maduro from office, uh, tried to get that result out of protests that happened in 2014. Um, and and Guaido seems to be sort of uh, sort of very close to, to Lopez, who's been under house arrest since, uh, since that since those very controversial protests that led to led, led to deaths both on the government and the protest side. So um, you know exactly how one situates these people ideologically is even one of the uh, is it can be a, a, a difficult thing. You can understand both why people want to associate Guaido with the right wing and for procedural reasons that makes that makes sense but it's not necessarily uh, 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 in in terms of the program that his party supports yeah it's it's, that, it's difficult to say I mean there yeah would certainly be some sort of I mean you would expect almost any government that would come in next would have to undergo some sort of economic shock treatment that people might end up describing as neoliberal but yeah, the the um, for folks who don't know the so the second international. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is this sort of like holdover from the old days of of so international socialism from like after after the first world war, if I'm not mistaken? And and um, uh, it's got you know like the social democratic party of Denmark and all the kind of you know th those those socialist uh institutions from from back when they maybe were actually actually more socialist almost totally moribund now i would say doesn't really do anything um, yeah but it's not definitely a military person military right winger would not want to be associated with that necessarily right i mean this is that's right so it's the these are the the moderate the moderate socialists these were the non the non-communists during the cold war the third international people yeah. You know, know of the 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 Comintern, the Communist International, the Second International, were the sort of social democrats who were opposed to who were opposed to communism. And so now the issue with the Second International, which has seen defections, and uh, uh, I mean the the DSA convention in Chicago, I think DSA disaffiliated from the Second International, yeah. just as an example of you know dissatisfaction with the sort of I don't know, third way socialism sort of thing that that the Second International represents. So, uh, you know, at the same time, it just it's all all that may be true. I mean, it's just helpful, uh, I suppose, in situating ideologically yeah, yeah. where some of the opposition oh, is 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 coming from. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, I don't know, libertarian in orientation or something like that, but uh, but has a, a sort of social democratic ethos, if not a 
any kind of plan that's going to get you to social democracy. Yeah, but bland center left. I mean, like labor parties type. A labor star parties in there exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so that brings us to sort of present day. Uh, you know, after that election, disputed election, Trump slapped a bunch more sanctions on them, and now suddenly he's talking about some kind of military intervention, maybe. He's recognized Guaido, or a bunch of Europeans have also done that, and uh, he's he's appointed Elliot Abrams, who was like the a contra contra killer guy, basically, you know, running death squads in Nicaragua um, as his sort of like you know Venezuela guy, and you know that that just like <laughs> extremely bad sign, you know. Um, and I, I suppose that that sort of sets up the general question, which you know I, I take it as a given that uh, uh, any left lefty or center lefty or even you know anybody with any sort of conscience or sense should absolutely oppose any kind of military intervention, and I think the sanctions aren't doing anything good either. Um, the best, you know, especially with Trump as president, you know, it seems to me like he couldn't possibly do anything right that we should just probably leave Venezuela to, to the extent, greatest possible extent, just leave Venezuela to sort out its own business at this point. But there is a sort of a question of how how the left should sort of, you know, Venezuela still is sort of being treated as this like football in the in the in the political domestic political discourse and there's a question about how how the left should sort of um you know position itself regarding venezuela because i think it you know it crosses a lot of political wires and i think people have been getting you know like tangled up about it yeah people have really been getting zapped (laughs) it's i can testify to that yeah I, i think so I've been thinking a lot about that. I've been observing that and thinking a lot about some of the reasons why uh, why that might be, um, because it seems almost impossible for people to are, articulate something which uh, doesn't seem to have some kind of problem with with the way that it's the, the way that it's expressed. Now, on the one hand, this has sort of been true of Venezuela for, Venezuela for a long time. Um, it's been an easy way to, uh, to provoke anger in international left circles is to, to say almost anything about Venezuela is to invite, uh, a, a spirited response. And I think in part, so one of the things that I think is, is happening is that, uh, the that the international left and the U.S. left, and it's, especially people who work on on Latin America, are extremely cognizant of the history of U.S. imperialism in Latin America and around the world, and yeah. there are ways in which this looks, uh, and 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 is. I mean, to say by saying that it looks like that that old pattern. I mean, it is that old pattern, and that pattern hasn't. Uh, I mean, it has changed in some ways from the height of the Cold War, but uh, there are other ways that it is continuous with uh, with Cold War policy. Your example of Elliot Abrams is who's now in charge of democracy promotion in Venezuela. I mean, give me a break. <laughs> this is the guy. You know, this is a guy who, when he worked for the Reagan administration, 
denied the the massacres that were being carried out by right-wing uh, death squads that had been trained by the United States in El Salvador. And the reason that he did that, the reason that he was in, in denial about that was that in, in Congress had put uh, restrictions on the kinds of aid that the Reagan administration could give as Democratic Congress to Central America. They had to certify that these, the human rights conditions were being met. So that put him in a position of, of, of denying the violence that the, that, that the right wing was inflicting on civilians and on those societies to horrific effect. Uh, it, was, it was really, really quite, uh, quite grotesque. And to now have this be the person who's in charge of democracy promotion in Venezuela should make everyone, you know, everyone worried about the, the, uh, <laughs> you know, what, what exactly that would what, what de- kind of democracy somebody like Elliot Abrams would have in mind. Um, this has been, I mean, that, spe- that specifically that issue has been one of the main debates on, that the left has been having about Venezuela since the, since the days of Chavez. That for many, Chavismo seemed to represent a kind of participatory democracy, an alternative model, um, that, as opposed to, you know, part of boring parliamentary procedural liberal democracy that uh, people in the United States and Western Europe live with and experience its flaws all the time. And it, the kind of democratic deficits that come along with that form of democracy, the participatory democracy that Chavez claimed that he was building, uh, was seen as an inspirational alternative alternative model. The fact that it had... Uh, certain authoritarian characteristics, including the concentration of power in the hands of the executive, um, that have, you know, the the consequences of which are partially now being being lived out. Of course, other decisions have been made along the way. But, um, you know, are among the contradictions that people are dealing with as they try to figure out how to position themselves with respect to what's happening in this current crisis. If I could say one other thing about about Abrams and the continuities, particularly to the Cold War that I that I have been, um, you know, that I've been observing over the uh, while watching this this crisis develop. Sure. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that I wrote a book about the cultural Cold War and back then from 1950 to 1967, uh, the, the CIA was was the part of the U.S. government that um was responsible for civil society programs. And they had this, there's a branch of the CIA called the International Organizations Division that some people know because they funded arts programs and abstract expressionism is supposed to be the art that represents freedom and things, things <laughs> of that nature. And so people have sometimes some passing familiarity with that. And there's a group called the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which existed during that time with a big CIA subsidy that promoted this idea of cultural freedom as being one of the values of the West and what distinguished uh, it from, uh, from, you know, what distinguished the West from totalitarian states, including fascism. But since the fascist threat had been defeated militarily, then the threat of communism during, during the Cold War, that stuff was all exposed in 67. And the, it was supposed to be, was supposed to be all closed down. Um, but what the Reagan administration did in 1983 was to make the National Endowment for Democracy, uh, which started operating mm. in 1984. And 
the uh, the director of of NED uh, is a guy named Carl uh, Gershom, who's the former executive director of Social Democrats USA. <laughs> and so Social Democrats USA, again, this is like all leftist inside baseball, right? But the but that's the sort of right wing socialists who uh, who broke off um, from uh from from Michael Harrington uh at, who formed the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee which later led to was folded into into DSA uh today and the so the Social Democrats USA have a have a, a closer association with neoconservatism this is that edge of uh, sometimes people describe them as like state department socialists uh and it's 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 there are in fact direct personal links between the National Endowment for Democracy folks, of which Elliot Abrams is a participant, uh, and that earlier uh, era of, of Cold War democracy promotion through, through the CIA, which is not to say that the NED is the same as the CIA. They're more transparent, but they are funded. They're, they're basic, the basic thing that they do is the thing that the CIA did until it got caught in 67, which was to fund essentially pro-democracy uh, front groups uh, it, that would, um, you know, especially when there were regimes were ones that the United States deemed strategically inconvenient. Uh, and so w w all the way back to the Chavez years in the early 2000s, Chavez would complain constantly about interference in what was happening in Venezuela by NED would because NED would be funding opposition newspapers or uh, funding, um, you know, opposition party activities. And NED would say, well, we're nonpartisan. We're just defending democracy against, a, you know, an authoritarian leader. And Chavez would say, you know, this is foreign electoral interference in, uh, in a, in a sovereign, uh, in a sovereign state. So the, the, the Cold War politics have not uh, have not totally disappeared. Yeah, yeah, and that, uh, yeah. I mean, it's like the what's what's the other one? Foundation for Defense of Democracies, which is like every other day writing op eds about how Saudi Arabia is an important ally and the and the UAE, just absolute frauds. Um, yeah, I mean that's the so this is this is where people are you know on the on the left I think uh, are are struggling with how to how to confront this situation because we have a government with Maduro that is genuinely repressive where people and poor people it's not just it's not a I mean it used to be that there was a real class divide between opposition to Chavez and uh, you know he had the support of the poor primarily and the distrust of the of the bourgeoisie of course there were members of the bourgeoisie that found ways to accommodate themselves to the Chavez government. But it's very clear that in this last round of protests and in the and also in the protests before this one in, in 2017, that that class distinction has broken down substantially, that there's a huge amount of discontent uh, among Venezuela's poor uh, with the, the Maduro government. Um, whether that translates into support for the opposition has always been a separate question. And that sometimes gets confused in 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 international uh, discussion. You know, Nancy Pelosi, I saw, was tweeting, so we're standing with the people of Venezuela. Well, I mean, 
well, what does that mean? What you what you think the yeah. people of Venezuela want? You know, that's who the people of Venezuela who want democracy. Again, that's the whole problem. Nobody is clear on how democracy is going to be defined. I mean, it's something that everybody is trying to claim an association with, uh, and everybody's claims are dubious. Maduro's claims are dubious by this point. Why those claims are dubious, and that's why there's this uh, the political crisis is as deep uh, as it is. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I guess you know, like, like you saw me getting a, a dispute with uh, Max Blumenthal and so forth um, uh, about you know, it's people people were outraged at at you know trying to point out the fact that you know Maduro is is uh, you know the 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 probable you know victim of u.s imperialism in a sense but bef- but really before that even started he was uh undermining democracy and just fucking up the economy just doing a terrible job and being very corrupt and i think that there's this 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 knee-jerk this tendency to just like romanticize people who are on the business end of elliot abrams to think well they must be good or we must defend them and that to me seems like a a kind of a I mean I don't know a, f- a fool's errand um maybe this is tactic. the other thing yeah, yeah I ahead. mean this is the other thing that reminds me so much of the of the cold war uh, um that and, and here we don't have I mean Maduro is not Stalin no, no, next, no you know whatever I mean this is we don't the the the, the there there is there are political prisoners, there is torture, there is repression, those things exist. But still, I mean, look, we have to bear in mind, keep a sense of perspective about, uh, about uh, you know, what things are and what they aren't. But, it, but it, what, what it reminds me so much of somebody who would take the position you know, of defending Maduro would be essentially doing what... Um, what many communists and fellow travelers did during during the cold during the early cold war when stalin was still before stalin died in 1953 which was to to know i mean they knew some of them had visited the soviet union they knew what was going on they would come back to the united states and they wouldn't be willing to say what they knew about what was happening over there because they felt like that would feed into right-wing narratives about the soviet union that they were hoping for a kind of peaceful resolution uh, of conflict between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, they were fearing the outbreak of a of a third world war, and so they felt like anything that they say badly about you know about about the Soviet Union at that time would be feeding into the hands of the enemy. And I feel like some people are getting into that into that kind of situations. We've seen a number of statements. There was a statement that a, a number of my friends signed that Noam Chomsky was sort of lead signatory on condemning what was, you know, what's what's happening, condemning the U.S.-backed coup attempt in Venezuela. And it's a sort of, uh, you know, on the one hand, Maduro has done these things that are bad. And on the other hand, the opposition has done these things that are bad. And, I, uh, you, you know, sort of every sentence is true. And still some people feel like, well, it doesn't quite capture the fact that Maduro is the primary author of uh, of these policies and primarily responsible for the conditions that exist in Venezuela to that day, to, to today. I think that's correct. I mean, I think that Maduro is primarily the, the person who is primarily responsible in spite of the, you know, in spite of the imperial meddling, in spite of the 
you know, which which exists. But again, one has to keep that sort of thing also in perspective and not let that be the overwhelm the kind of story, which is what which is what Chavez did and what Maduro does is try to make make that make that the major thing that to make the you know U.S. interference in our country is the is the big story that there's a capital strike by the wealthy that is responsible for our economic crisis and it, and those stories are uh, you know those are exaggerated for propaganda for propaganda purposes even when there's a like most good propaganda it works best when there's a kernel of truth there's a kernel of truth but it it also leaves something, you know, leaves something to be, to be desired. And so what I think is happening to people on the left that are, is that their desire to, uh, to stop U.S. meddling has sometimes led them to kind of soft pedal some of the, some of the crimes of the, of, of the Maduro administration. And there's a sort of gap between what you would say if you were trying to explain the the crisis in a sort of analytical academic way and what you want to say to have the most impact in a time of political crisis and tension. And there, and, and that, that the gap between those two things means that anything that anybody says can be criticized from another position. Um, yeah. You know, and, and there, it, it can be some validity to that, to the, to that criticism. Uh, because I am in complete agreement with the signatories who say that, that the United States should play no role in deciding who is the president of Venezuela and that there's no, under there's no planet on which I'm going to lock arms with Elliot Abrams and pretend that that's, you know, that, that the democracy is going to be the likely result of that, uh, of that kind of activity. Um, yeah. And at the same time, I think it's important to maintain some intellectual clarity and then to think about, well, uh, what can be done? Uh, if you think about it from the point of view of Venezuela, people are hungry, people lack medicine. I mean, people are really desperate. That's why millions have left the country. What is our, you know, what is the, the left obligation to solidarity? Um, you know, how do you get, uh, how can you resolve this crisis in a, in, in a peaceful way? And that's where I think that, uh, th that what most people on the left have been saying, that the, the signatory, the signatories, that letter that Trump's the lead signatory of, people like Representative Rokhana, um, ha, you know, have, have, have said that we should support a process of dialogue. Uh, between the opposition and the Maduro government, uh, uh, the government of Mexico uh, and the government of Uruguay have also gotten behind behind that, uh, and uh, I think that that's essentially the right, the 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 best uh, the best thing that the that the left can offer. But it has to do it with from from I mean, it should do it from a position of clarity about what's going on. Uh, and the fact that Maduro has in the past used negotiations to try and stall. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's yeah, a tough situation. No, no question. Yeah. Worth pointing out that, that uh, AMLO in Mexico is, has more or less the same position as the, the, you know, Chomsky letter and, and similar, you know, Bernie Sanders and such to say that like imperialism is bad, not terribly impressed with Maduro either. Um, and 
Uh, and, and so some of my, you know, some of my friends and colleagues and journalists in Mexico have really been upset with this position that that uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador has taken the relatively new, uh, relatively left wing president of Mexico, saying that this is, you know, the betrayal of Venezuela or something like that. Uh, the Venezuelan people on the more, you know, the more liberal side of the spectrum. There's that kind of critique. I, I'm sorry, I think that misses what's going on. I mean, I think it's very important for a country like Mexico to maintain a possible open channel to different parties in this, you know, in, in this situation. Mexico has yeah. traditionally played a role of, uh, of an escape valve. It's a place that, you know, uh, that Maduro, were he to step down, uh, in some sort of as part of some broader agreement that would be a, an opportunity to have to to host a, a kind of fair election and start in a kind of clean way to resolve this intense political crisis that Venezuela has been facing for years now and to begin to resolve the economic crisis and so on. Maybe Maduro needs to step down and go somewhere else. And Mexico could be a place that that would, you know, who could provide that kind of exile. And you might say, it might maybe some people don't like that, but that would be a good outcome, a good outcome for 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 people in Venezuela, who you know deserve, uh, and poor people in Venezuela who deserve our sympathy. So, yeah, yeah, and I guess you know from from my perspective, you know, it's like the the. The the thing that that uh, is foremost in my mind when you're talking about you know international politics or domestic politics is like what is true, and that is I think you know the the thing that you you need to keep in mind, and um, you know people uh, pe- people have been disputing it's like oh, is it necessary to point this out is it you know are are you sort of like like s- secretly helping Trump, you know, it's like that's what people have accused me of. It's like, oh, you you're just supporting, you're you're covering your Trump support with this, like, you know, uh, by saying that you don't support Trump because you're pointing out the Maduro making bad decisions. Um, but I think also, you know, if if you are like, I see sometimes on the left people saying Maduro is perfect, done nothing wrong. It's all it's one hundred percent the fault of of uh, U.S. and economic imperialism that could just discredit your opinion by being as a matter of empirical reality bullshit you know yeah and 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 actually end up you know undermining the case in that sense by making it sound completely wacky um yeah i mean that's there are all kinds of bad arguments that are out there floating around i mean that's certainly that's certainly one of them uh part of uh, uh you know, another one. Venezuela, of course, has a ton of oil. I mean, it's part of the part of the issue. They went through this cycle in the seventies, eighties, nineties, also, where there was a huge oil boom, a ton of social spending, then a price collapse, then huge protests. This is originally originally where Hugo Chavez came from in the first place. Was leading a military coup against uh, a failed military coup initially, and then he was elected president. Fair elections. Uh, seven or so years later after after that attempted coup in 92 um so there's a kind of inherent um there's a problem in the the foundations of the of the economy associated with being a kind of 
uh, with being oil dependent. And that's certainly something that uh, Chavez did not did not break, uh, that Maduro has certainly not broken, um, and that has been one of the major discussions uh, among people on the left and the Latin American left is thinking about how much of these pink tide governments depended on high commodity prices and uh, and extractive economies. Uh, in order for their social spending and in the future as we both need we need to both reduce dependence on fossil fuel consumption and so on uh to for um, you know obviously to deal with uh, uh, the devastation and the coming devastation of climate change current and coming devastation of climate change uh and also to think about you know the how we improve the lives of people in poverty how we make more equal societies less less socially divided ones we need some kind of different models to 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 think about, but I don't think it does anybody any good to um, to deny the realities of uh, of you know what has happened and what has gotten us into this. What has gotten us and I, by us and people on the left and it's into this into this situation. Yeah, and this I know you got to take off soon, but this seems like. In a different context, you know, I, I would I would get people uh, grinding my gears over over focusing too much on the Nordic countries that like this is fake socialism. Real socialism is Cuba and Bolivia and Venezuela. Um, but if you look at how Norway dealt with a similar oil strike, um, you know, they they instead of just like spending it all down as it was coming in, they built up this big wealth fund with it to provide a sort of like constant stream of revenue. And that seems to me a good, you know, uh, uh, lesson that like that's what you should do if you have a big commodity boom. You shouldn't just like enjoy the revenue as at, at the moment and then just like hope it doesn't collapse because, you know, either it'll run out or the price will go down at some point. And you know, it, I think tends to demonstrate that that socialism really like building a competent, efficient and non-corrupt bureaucracy is maybe the hardest thing to do. And that getting, you know, you can fool yourself by getting really uh, head up about imperialism or, or, you know, U.S. aggression, even if it may be the case in certain circumstances, like it still matters that people are 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 doing a good job and not stealing money, you know, by the billions. Right. And people should keep in mind too. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and I think that's exactly, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you have a natural resource. uh, It has to be invested carefully. And it should be said that one of the things that people on the left want to protect in these conversations about Venezuela is that we know that Venezuela has become a kind of right-wing talking point for like the disasters of, of socialism. Where do you want? You want to be a socialist? We want to end up like Venezuela. It does no good to say that, you know, actually it's fine in Venezuela because it's not a yeah. place that, you know, that's not, that's not true. That's when people, yeah. people's suffering is very real. Um, you know, on the other hand, but on the other hand, you look at Venezuela, at, excuse me, at Bolivia, which has been a geopolitical ally of Venezuela, has managed its commodity boom much, 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 much more successfully, which has seen its economy grow under the presidency of Evo Morales uh, by more than 300%. I mean, so there, standards of living have improved dramatically. Now, if you were a Bolivian leftist, you were living in Bolivia, you would have certain complaints about Evo Morales. So we don't need to turn this into 
Right. There would there be things to criticize. There would be things to you know, to to focus on. But it's just to say that this is not the only possible outcome of a government that calls itself socialist. So I think people are you know are 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 defensive about that that the ways that that Venezuela has become this sort of right wing talking point about the the failures of socialism. I don't think it discredit discredit socialism. But at the same time, I don't I don't agree with those on the left who say well. This isn't socialism because it's not, you know, it's authoritarian or this or that. We need to understand that this also came out, you know, it does come from the left. And it's something that that leftists need to do a good job of identifying and preventing this kind of mistake from from yeah. our side. We need to take ownership of, uh, of that and think about what responsibilities we have uh, to uh, you know, an, an, uh, an international left that is both, you know, that is effective not just rhetorically satisfying, but effective at improving the lives of, uh, of, of the, of the poor and of working class people around the world. Yeah. It's a, it's a definite failure mode out there. It doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't indict the entire project, but it is a, something that you want to, you know, you don't want to go there for sure. Right. Um, Okay, well, um, any other things you want to add before I let you go? I know you're short of time. Um, yeah, I mean, I just I just want to say you know that we've we've touched on it briefly, but I do think that people should continue to uh, be aware that the the Trump administration, I mean, let's not minimize the degree to which the Trump administration has been involved in this, in this decision. And it's a little bit yeah. weird, actually, because, you know, the Trump administration is not known for its hostility to authoritarian governments. Part of this <laughs> seems to be that, you know, that Marco Rubio sort of got like the Venezuela uh, job because Trump, I guess, you know, can't be bothered to do many things. Uh, yeah. And, or anything. Or anything. Right. Exactly. So, uh, and, you know, and Rubio representing Florida, there are many exiles, many of whom, you know, the, the Cuba, people familiar with the Cuban exiles from a previous generation, but there are many wealthy Venezuelans who left for, for Florida in earlier uh, generations of, de, you know, in earlier waves of, de, of departures and who are ferociously opposed to, uh, opposed to, to both, to, both to Chavez and to Maduro, sometimes for reasonable reasons and sometimes for reasons that are, you know, that are, they lost out personally and, um, are upset about that. Um, but it, it's, it, you know, we have essentially the neocons within the, within the, within the Trump administrations, which is would I would not describe as a neoconservative administration, but there's, you know, there's John Bolton as national security advisor seems to have, you know, had a, got caught with a, a legal pad. Somebody zoomed in on it and said, it's sending 5,000 troops to Colombia was written on the legal pad. Uh, so we don't know. I mean, that 5,000 troops is not enough for an invasion of a country. Uh, no. It's an, it's enough for, um, you know, like the invasion of Panama, I think it was 28, 29,000 troops in 89, Dominican Republic in 65 was 40,000, 5,000. I mean, Venezuela is a, is a, you know, it's a substantial country. That's enough for uh, extraction operation, as I understand it. So this 5,000 troops to Colombia doesn't necessarily mean that an invasion is, is imminent, but, but obviously, you know, the, the, the situation is Trump in the United States, this very right-wing president in, in Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, 
uh, right-wing president in Colombia. And there is a, uh, you know, a sense that, that the right is going to seize on this moment to try and produce regime change in Venezuela. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Get okay. a right wing in there. Yeah. So that, and and be as respond. I mean, be as involved as possible in the process to therefore produce an outcome which is as congenial and convenient to their interests as possible. And so I think yep. what the, the in my opinion, what the principal left wing position should be is firm and total opposition, obviously, to any military action in Venezuela. I mean, that seems like an obvious non-starter for, for anybody on, yeah. uh, on the left. The U.S. should not be playing a role in deciding who Venezuela's president is, right? That Or, you know, in the internal politics of other countries. And that's particularly true given the, the history of the United States in the, in the region. But it's Absolutely. true in general. I mean, the United States doesn't, doesn't get to pick leaders of other countries. Um, we barely get to pick leaders of our own country these days. So <laughs> not going to, it's, it's Very really, true. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, a lot of people are upset about that. So the shoes on the other foot here is to be principled about, you know, yeah. not supporting, not supporting meddling of, of foreign governments in, in elections, including when it comes from, from the United States. We need to start with democracy promotion here at home. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the, um, so I think that's clear. Support of the negotiated settlement, I think, is the is the right thing to land on, uh, effectively. Um, uh, but without making that a, a kind of apology for the failures of the government, it should be a you know real. We should be realistic about what has ha- what has happened here and the responsibility of the left. So I don't I don't think that people should be trying to protect. Maduro or even the legacy of Hugo Chavez that will drive people to the to the right and that will drive the coalition that eventually there will be a new government in in Venezuela. One hopes that that happens through peaceful means. Um, And we want that government to be as responsible and as responsive as possible. It will include elements of the opposition it will include Chavista elements. They're clearly, I mean, there's been a robust sort of social movement presence in Venezuela throughout these throughout these years. Those are the foundation of left-wing politics. And you, you want those people to be involved. You don't want those people to face massive repression or state violence after a change, after a change in government. We don't want to make excuses for state violence now. We don't want to yeah. see it in the future turned against you know some other sector of society so the outcome should be some sort of reconciliation and you want to play a part in that play a part in that, that process so that the coalition that emerges in a new government situation is as broadly representative and can move the situation out of the crisis that it's been for the last few years for that reason I don't think that I don't think the U.S. has any role to play. I just don't. You know, the U.S. government no. has no. You know, it's not going to improve that situation, and its its participation is going to give Maduro's government an opportunity to say, "Look at this meddling that is happening, that you know is sponsored by the United States." 
it is being, I mean, it was, clearly was coordinated with the United States because Guaido was recognized immediately by the U.S. and yeah. other, and there's been reporting, you know, that they were having these kind of conversations behind the scenes. So it is true that the U.S., you know, meddling is an important part of the picture. It doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, that Venezuelans are not acting for their for their own reasons and that the dissatisfaction is not real. So you just sort of keep in all of those things simultaneously in mind and support yeah. a political process that can, you know, that can produce the the best possible outcome with uh, through peaceful negotiations. That's what we can. Uh, that's the best I think we can hope for through the circumstances. Yeah, definitely. You know, hands off Venezuela, and you know, it would be if if it's bad for Maduro to be kind of you know looting these oil revenues or his cronies, then it would be just as bad for a bunch of military officers and American oil companies to be doing the same thing. Oh so, yeah, absolutely. You know, you know. All right. Well, uh, I imagine you got to go, right? Um, okay. Well. Patrick Ebert, thanks for coming on. Um, thanks for your time, and uh, yeah, we hope hope to see you again sometime. Uh, absolutely, thanks for thanks for talking. Welcome back. That was uh, Patrick. We were glad to have him on. I wish I could have been there. I I was there in spirit, kind of like um, you know the Jedi's when they can be out of their body and they can oversee spiritually, and, and and but they can't really participate. They can just watch. I was doing that in a strange, creepy way. As, my body was right. teaching somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, I, I had, you know, like in that Star Wars movie where Luke appears and he's de-aged 20 years uh, to where yes. his beard has just for men in it. and just... <laughs> You felt it, right? Like you, you yeah, felt my that's presence. Right. Good. You're good. feeding me the good, no, the good that... takes. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I think we covered the territory pretty well. Um, and I think, I think that the, uh, you know, we hit all the main points and I think that just like, you know, whenever, whenever we get into these kind of disputes about like political tactics and, um, you know, whether one is sort of phrasing this, like, like it, it reminds me of the, uh, the 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 there's there was this huge debate for many years about um in the climate uh climate change community about how you sort of could convince republicans that uh you know that 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 climate change is a real thing that if you like if you uh if you change the way that you framed things you'd make it more likely to like this or that and to me that is almost impossible to actually execute that that framing and um the way that you present things is really not it's it's you know once you say something it gets sucked into the maelstrom of partisan politics and you lose almost all control over it and what really matters to me and what i think is most important is what is true what is actually happening i was gonna I was going to ask you why that matters. Uh, this is, of course, a rhetorical device, but like, um, because I thought it's interesting where you were going there with the the climate change thing. Because I could almost hear someone objecting, like the the Twitter people that are objecting to you, um, who are saying, "Who cares about being intellectually honest? What is the?" And this is, I think, something we come down on the same side of all the time. But we very much 
I think, see from the left this push to focus almost exclusively on what is the quote unquote work uh, that your argument or rhetoric is doing politically, meaning who cares if it's true is are you playing into someone else's hands or are you, um, you know, framing things in a way that seeds uh, seeds the argument or something like that, as if nuance itself was problematic in that way. But um, with the environmental, uh, with climate change, couldn't you just say that, well, yeah, you're never going to convince somebody on the opposite side. So why does reason and truth and objectivity matter? Shouldn't we just try to win the rhetorical battle any way we can? Shouldn't we just try to win politically? So that, I'll pose that to you briefly. I have my own thoughts. But but wouldn't that be that the, um, to, to your own point, they're not going to listen. So why not just try to defeat uh, the opposition uh, and, and don't cede any ground? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess, you know, and in, insofar, I, I just feel like the 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 connection there is very tenuous, and I think that that the one thing you can sort of cling to is the fact that, you know, whatever you know what that whatever you're talking about, you have your facts in order, I guess, and then you sort of like move from there onto your kind of like trying to mobilize the people that actually agree with you. Um, you know, it's not, it's, it's not, it's not as if you're, it's not a sort of technocratic thing. It was like just the facts, you know, but I think it's just a, right. a, re- a recognition of the, the limitations of, of this kind of thing to say like, well, the, 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 the rhetoric is, you know, the important thing is if you're, you're stopping this, this, um, you know, imperialist aggression, then, you know, that's the only thing that matters. But I think, you know, in, you know, insofar as, uh, you know, people like, I guess I would reject that premise, actually, and as well, to say that being a very sort of partisan defender of Maduro as Max Blumenthal and Ben Norton, who are both incredibly fucking stupid, um, have have done you know in conversations with me online i think that discredits the 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 argument against imperialism because it allows you know the sort of neocons to point to to people like that and say look at these fucking cranks look at these absolute lunatics who are defending someone who has ruined his country and right. you know so, it associates it with wackiness, and you don't. I don't think you have to like go completely the other direction and say like Maduro is the worst person who's ever lived. But I think that denying reality to say that Maduro is some sort of good person, it doesn't work even rhetorically. I think it it has the opposite effect. No, that's a good point. It, to me, and I don't know um, what you think about this. This tracks. So similarly to our discussions on kind of Russia Gate and Russia Trump stuff, yes, and the right, like it's it's almost exactly the same rhetorical um, maneuver where we don't care. Almost says some p- portion of the left what the actual facts on the ground are. Uh, we think that it's dangerous, right? Like the work that would be done by not blaming Hillary and the Democrats entirely for the loss and instead aligning uh, 
Putin and Russia and this foreign involvement as the real locus of responsibility. Uh, I don't care how true that is. I don't like the work it does in the argument. Therefore, I'm just going to pretend it doesn't exist as if people won't be like, but that's not that's that's not true. (laughs) Right. Like as if you could just wish away reality and have a persuasive rhetorical argument. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it is that it is a very similar argument and almost the same people. It's the same people who are very, like, very, very against Russiagate, like, um, you know, skeptical of the the entire idea, despite the, you know, fairly compelling evidence now that, um, you know, uh, what's what's Roger Stone now had the he had the contacts with like, here's. This is the biggest um we didn't get to this in our last episode because it was recorded before the before this happened but right um right he lied about being basically the back channel to WikiLeaks which got its hacked emails from the Russian intelligence services so there was a pretty much direct line from from Russian intelligence services on the one side to the Trump campaign on the other side so it yeah you know like it's you, the weirdest thing coops they all these are the same people that also can't take joy in roger stone going down because the fbi were the ones that arrested him <laughs> like that doesn't mean that we we like celebrate the history of the fbi's oppression and violence against right like no. against leftists and minorities like i why is this so complicated this is not hard this is like we like that Stone got taken down. We don't like the other things the FBI did, FBI did that are bad. It doesn't mean we're making the FBI heroes writ large and generally. No. I, like, R- Russia in the past was communist. It's actually authoritarian capitalist, plutocratic now. Uh, that's not leftism, okay? Like, Venezuela, insofar as terrible things and, and corrupt oligarchs are being helped and, and, and insofar as anti-democratic authoritarian moves are being made, that's not leftist. So you don't need to defend it as leftist. Like, I, I just don't... Why can't we just critique the things properly? Like, I don't yeah. understand. Yeah. Well, in this, you know, this this dispute that I, that I got into with... Uh, uh, with with uh, Blumenthal and Norton, um, I think it really reinforced the necessity of of like making this critique, to being clear with the with with, you know the the the. What went wrong in Venezuela? Why is this happening? And actually, what kind of character is Maduro? And right. there is no, you could never convince me that there there's some sort of like hypothetical political benefit that is going to justify the idea of of like more or less lying about that what's what's going on and not um, only that i think yeah go ahead no no all yours i i i just um this is amping me up i like it this is great uh it's you know, philosophically, theoretically, this is the problem I'm seeing. It's like, I see a regime that I identify in my brain as leftist. And therefore, what they do must be good, because leftism is good. 
Except it might be the other way. It might be like, depending what they do, they may or may not be leftist, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. And like, insofar as leftism is good, it's, beca- it's because it's democratic. It's because it's egalitarian, right? So, so like, you, you know, in the same way that I'm going to bring in classical philosophy again, you know, the polis or the political community isn't the same just because the name and the territory are the same doesn't mean it's the same regime always right like so even if you think about uh the united states or the city you live in uh is it the same city just because the, well the boundaries change anyway but like 20 years ago is it the same does it have the same character the same spirit are, are the the laws and the customs and the way that people live the same and that changes uh the the nature and the kind of i don't essence if you will of um the regime and how people live together, right? So, like, it's kind of like you can't step in the same river twice, right? So, if something that was founded on socialist um, principles uh, becomes governed in a way that shifts away from those principles, you can critique that because yeah. it's deviating from the thing it's supposed to be, right? Yeah. Not not only that, you must critique it. You must. You, you must, must be clear. When people are not, when they are failing to do the things that were, uh, um, that that they sort of are setting out to do, and right. this I think is a is a very underrated point. Chris Chris Hayes had a had a tweet um, where he was talking about how you know socialism more or less lives or dies on whether or not you can create an efficient bureaucracy, um, and there's a there's a a, a very illuminating uh, new politics article about like basically why Venezuela is in severe economic difficulties. I'll link it in the in the description. And you know, it basically, you know, the the big reason is Maduro's and his cronies have been looting money out of the exchange control mechanism that Venezuela has to basically steal the oil money. And then the the price of oil fell by like half in twenty fourteen. And that was, you know, like like they covered the difference by printing money, etc. Uh, you get hyper. That's how you get hyperinflation. Um, but another thing they mentioned in that article was that a lot of the things, you know, Chavez back when he was a uh, uh, president had sort of like haphazardly nationalized a lot of industries and hadn't really paid a great deal of attention about how those those things that those business enterprises were managed and they didn't think that you know it was just it, it became very cronyist and if you compare that to for example how norway uh set up their uh oil company when they discovered a ton of oil well, they paid very, very close attention about how you run a good oil company. They, they, they hired a private company to be like, teach us how to build a oil platform out in this, you know, the North Sea, which is a very treacherous place. And they built them the oil platform. They learned how to do it. Then they built their own oil platform. So it's like taking efficient operation of bureaucracy institutional knowledge experience you know just like being a competent and professional and uh uh sort of honorable public servant very 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 seriously and that i think is the big reason why norway is successful 
and Venezuela is not. That they that they they had the you know they they really 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 tried. You know, you could point to a lot of other things, but like that kind of public solidarity, to, you know, the 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 public servants who do their job in a very sort of you know patriotic or however you want to call it way that makes all the difference i think uh, that's a great point i have a couple of points to, to make off of that one is that um first of all we should we should kind of note the caveat that anytime you're measuring the success of a quote-unquote socialist nation uh nation state we're doing so now in the context of global capitalism right so like uh, the the idea is that <clears throat> capitalism is global necessarily, and it means something quite different to try to operate as a socialist nation state in competition with capitalist free market economies around the world. That's one thing. Uh, the the second thing is that insofar as you can still do that successfully, um, which I think I don't know if this is a different discussion, but I think. If you have global socialism, that means something totally different for how how uh, well yeah. run and how successful uh, a particular nation state can be, right? And maybe you don't have nation states. That's a, that's a whole other thought. But uh, within global capitalism, right, a socialist nation state can still be successful. And maybe what makes it more socialist – so I don't know exactly what, say, Matt Brunig's argument was um, – you know, with Norway being more socialist in Venezuela, maybe it's exactly what you were just saying. But if it is, it might be because to be socialist isn't just to have certain principles, but to be actually better at accomplishing those goals and being in an actual practice more egalitarian, which means considering how your resources should more equally redound to uh, everyone in the population and now and in the future, right? So you have certain um, duties to preserve your wealth and make sure that future populations have access to it. So, so that's more socialist to actually do that, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you, you know, as a, as a matter, Norway and Venezuela have been in similar positions in terms of, uh, their sort of natural resource base. Um, I mean, Norway only found its oil relatively recently, I believe. Um, but what Venezuela has done is basically they hit these big oil strikes and then they use them to sort of fund current spending and then the price collapses and then they, uh, you know, they have this massive economic crisis. And what, what Norway has done is very, very gradually and, and, you know, step by step build up this just hyper-efficient bureaucracy, which takes that, that oil money that they have and built, built up this enormous, uh, you know, sovereign wealth, sovereign wealth fund with it, which, um, you know, it, 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 I mean, at least in the first instance, makes for a sort of permanent wealth stream instead of, uh, you know, a temporary thing that could that could go away whenever the price of oil collapses. And secondly, you know, 
um, ha- has sort of socialized the means of production in a very concrete sense to say that, like, the state owns a huge fraction of the wealth in Norway and a decent fraction of world wealth, like 1.3% of all of the stocks in the world. And, um, you know, I think that that it doesn't seem obvious to me that it would have been impossible for Venezuela to sort of do that thing. We're just sort of like sitting quietly away in their little corner of, of the globe and build up something like that. Um, or trying to, you know, not get crosswise with the United States diplomatically. Uh, I think that, 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 you know, you certainly see now that, right-wing forces in Latin America and the United States are seizing on this as a good excuse to sort of try to replace Maduro with some kind of dictator, a right-wing dictator who would probably be even more corrupt than he is. But, um, you know, if, if, if someone had just sort of delivered the goods, a party or an organization without having the sort of economic crisis and without trying to steal elections or, or, you know, like rejigger the constitution so they can never lose. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting coops. Cause it, it seems to me that the same people that argue, uh, against criticizing, don't criticize Venezuela in any way. Don't criticize Maduro in any way aren't these the same people that would flip that like they would lose their minds if you, you know, the liberals who say don't criticize Hillary Clinton when she's running against Trump, because my God, I mean, you don't want Trump to win. Do you, isn't it the same type of logic that says we can't point out how terrible Hillary Clinton is because don't you understand the work that does that might help elect Trump? <laughs> isn't there an isn't there an irony there? These are the same people that that like felt fine about totally critiquing the neoliberals and Hillary Clinton, and and yet it seems to be the same consequentialist logic, right? Yeah, and I guess you know at the end of the day, it's you know we're just on a podcast, we're on Twitter, we are not powerful people, unfortunately. Very sad. I mean, you can do a lot of pull-ups, I gotta say. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's seen this. If you, if you become a $1,000 a month patron, Coops will do pull-ups uh, on video for you. I just made that That's, up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe. $1,000 a month. I mean, I would probably do it for like $20 a month. <laughs> That's, you heard it here first, folks. Um <laughs> But I think, you know, the value, uh, you know, we are, f- for lack of a better word, kind of intellectuals. And I think the value that intellectuals can provide is trying to sort out what is happening. And um, that's right. That's right. What, what is it? What is going on? What is a good example? What is a bad example? And, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of people who say that, um, you know, the Nordics are, are a stupid example. It's bad. You shouldn't try to replicate that kind of thing in the United States. And that the real socialism is Cuba and the USSR and Venezuela. And I think that's just, uh, it's just fucking stupid. That's a really, that's a really blinkered idea. And, um, you know, you should 
take a hard look at the empirics on the details and on the um you know ideology of of the of the uh various you know international uh comparisons that we have and sort of like see which ones work the best right and remember ideology is political theory plus action so it's like what are the ideals and the theories we have about human nature and how we want to live together and then what are the strategies we have for bringing that into being and if if your ideology ends up saying the action we should take is an authoritarian power grab maybe that's not a good ideology yeah 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 and i th- you know i read a lot of history recently about the russian revolution and i think that you know lenin was not uh entirely irredeemable but at the end of the day what he did was overturn democracy he he over he overturned democracy and instituted a kind of authoritarian system which was exploited uh by stalin to become a just terrifying uh nightmarish hellscape and you know i think that 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 People got to be confident about um, the way to move forward. To just to to not feel like you have to defend every shitty, you know, leftist or pseudo leftist government in the world. Like sometimes people fuck up. Like look at all the right wing governments that fuck up, you know. And there's there's like there's a lot of ways to screw things up. And and what one should do is try to learn from people's mistakes so that you don't repeat them and don't get sort of trolled into becoming a partisan of someone who is bad. That's right. And I think that's when you get the derogatory term, you're an ideologue. I think in a sense that that derogatory term makes sense. That's where it makes sense because it's great to have ideals and principles, but don't be so blind to the reality uh, and and that's where nuance gets wiped away and so forth. By the way, um, Stalin was very very sexy and hot as a young man. So let's just say that as many people as he killed and as terrible as he was, uh, right? Like, I think so, Lenin I mean, you can was see how hot. What? Okay, we got to do a poll. Can we can we put young hot Stalin and, and Lenin side by side and get a? We I mean, I'm biased because you know bald guys. Uh, <laughs> That's true. That's pretty sexy, I gotta say. That's, uh, yeah. All right. I see what you're saying. Stalin was Dangerous. very short as well. If we're talking about attractiveness, he was like five foot four. It's That tends to not a, go over well, you know? Yeah. Unfortunately. So he, he has the Napo- Napoleon uh, complex a little bit. Yeah, Supposedly, no Napoleon wonder. was about average height for his time. It was like five, yeah, unfairly six. maligned. F- five, seven, five, six, something like that. Yeah, yeah. strange, str- strange, uh, unfortunate. So it should be the Stalin complex, is what it should be. Do you think <laughs> Stalin would? Do you think Stalin would make up for it today with like the the big truck with the big engine and like the kind of? Um, That's a good question. When always you always wonder. Like how people would turn out in totally different social circumstances, 
Um, you know, it's like you you right. imagine Hitler if the Great Depression never happened and he just like became a sort of selling. It's like he spent many years selling paintings that he would he would paint every day on this. Like he was super poor for years and um, was just hawking paintings could, or having other people. Hawk he could have been them. a starving artist. Yeah. Did you know? Did you know life. he went to? Uh, he went to. Did you know he went to grade school with Wittgenstein? There's a legit picture no of shit. them both in the same like grade grade school picture. Yeah. Wow. Small yeah. world. At any rate, I would just say that um, what is happening in the world and what examples uh, that, that that the United States might might learn from, and on both counts. I think that Venezuela is not something that we need to be really investing ourselves in in defending. But that said, any proposed imperialist action to emphasize once more is absolutely illegitimate. We, you know, have to work night and day to prevent that from happening if if at all possible. And, um, you know, let let the Venezuelan people decide what needs to happen in that country. And just the way just just the way that we can cheer for democracy and be against um, sanctions or imperialism. um, But like in Brazil, be upset that the democratically elected leader is a fucking proto fascist. Like, we can still not like the democratic results for ideological reasons. The same is true in Venezuela, right? Like, we can support that they self-determine and still not be happy with the choice, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's some question about, you know, whether it's like the opposition boycotted the election in 2018. Yeah, that's complicated, complicated. Right. Yeah. I think, you know... You defend democracy. You say that, like, okay, you won the election. You know, if it's a right wing election, um, you know, I may not agree with that, but like that, that, that was the result. And um, so, you know, we'll move to a stance of saying that if you are legitimately elected, then you you need to abide by the results of the next election which I think will be uh, very telling in the case of Bolsonaro. Uh, right. Because I would guess that he is not going to be very popular come election time next, next uh, because he's not going to be able to solve any of the problems he said he would, and he's going to resort to military force to cling to power. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. All right, well... Thanks for listening, folks, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.